I believe you have a handout. And uh, this is, uh, does everybody have one of these now? Was that handed to you? Okay. Um, was it just a real crash and burn last week trying to put that on the screen? <laughs> but forgive the Michelangelo look there, but on uh, the, some of the artwork, but uh, it gives you a little bit of a framework. But you can find these on the web anywhere if you're inclined to do a little more research. And then this other is the regional groupings that the UN has put together. This is old. This is nothing new. For those who are paying attention, you're welcome just for your own use there. And um, as it's relevant in the day and age in which we live. Now, one of the things we try to do as Bible teachers is to avoid teaching the whole Bible every time we talk. <laughs> but sure, some of you are, are adept and you understand that when you saw all, you see all those scriptures on the bulletin, you're thinking, oh boy, we're going to be here a while. <laughs> well, I put them on there. This is what, remember, this was your reading assignment from last week. So if you didn't read it, guess what? It's still there. You can still read it. You didn't miss the boat. It's in your Bible. You can read it this week. <laughs> and if you don't get what's going on here and what I'm talking about to the full extent, you, maybe you can re-listen to the message. But I am going to go from Genesis to Revelation today. <laughs> so we're going to be flying low. You can take notes. I'm not going to go into major detail. This is a general outline, as it says, a recap. And what we've been studying in Matthew's Gospel are things that Jesus taught in his last week of ministry on earth. The, and we're, we're having an overview of those prophetic events that he spoke of there in Matthew's Gospel. I think it's important as a believer, one, that we have a good working knowledge of the Scriptures, that when people ask us for the hope that lies within us, we can give them a reason by turning to the Scriptures and saying, well, right here it says... It is an indictment against the church of Jesus Christ when we cannot defend the faith by showing people chapter and verse and line where we are standing on this truth revealed to us in the Word of God. It doesn't mean you have to be a theologian, but it does mean you need to give yourself to the Scriptures. You know, it's not that hard. How did Isaiah say it? Line upon line, precept upon precept, a little here, a little there, and this is the way we learn. You're just not going to, you know, pull out the, you know, flash drive, plug it in and download it. No, it's little by little. You're not, you know, your faith doesn't work that way. Oh, I'll wait till the tribulation starts and then I'll get serious with God. No, you won't. No, you won't. You're deceiving yourself. Faith isn't something that you can just turn on and turn off. It is a process of maturation and growth. It is the, the seed of truth planted in the mind. But then it goes to the heart where it can die and begin to grow and bring forth fruit and translate into good works. And that takes a process of time. It takes watering. It takes fertilization. It takes cultivation. All the things that we learn in this side of heaven must be cultivated. And that's part of what we're talking about here. And, and let's not, in this recap, miss the main point because we're going to be sharing a lot of head knowledge this morning. But let's not forget what the emphasis of that Jesus had about this time period between the two comings. Be ready. Watch and pray. 
Don't fall asleep. You know, if you fall asleep driving down the road, it's not going to end well. It just isn't. If you fall asleep, spiritually speaking, it's not going to end well for you. We're to be alert. We're to be awake. We're to be paying attention to what's going on. That's our, that's our moral responsibility before God. As children of God who image him, we have a, in that status we have a responsibility to image him before the world, to do what he would do if he were here in the flesh. And so we need this, I believe, this overview, this, this worldview of what God's plan is so that we know where we're at. The people who are out in the world, the Gentiles who know not God, they don't have a clue where they came from nor where they're going. That should not be so with the believer. We know the origin. We know God's plan. We know where we came from in one sense. And we know where we're going. (laughs) Praise the Lord. In the general sense. The specific sense comes about as we walk with him, of course. And so I do believe it's so important uh, that we understand things to come. If you have a good biblical worldview, the world makes sense. What's going on in the world and the chaos, it makes sense. You, you don't maybe like it or appreciate it, but you understand it. And that's helpful. We fear what we do not understand. And so there's, there's nothing for you and I to fear except him, the one who sits upon the throne in heaven. And so I do believe having this worldview and this overview, so to speak, help, helps us determine our personal destinies of what's really important. It, it helps us establish, as it were, our value system. What's eternal? What's temporal? What's not going to last? What is going to last? You know, there are only two eternal things on this planet. You do realize that. One is the Word of God. Two, the souls of men. Everything else, going to burn. Not going to last. So get a perspective. Get a handle on your life if you don't see it that way. Because it's the truth. So, Jesus, as we've studied these prophetic words that he spoke during his last week, uh, just before his crucifixion, he outlined these some prophetic events that would take place between the two comings. You know, he sort of insinuated a second coming at the end of chapter 23 that we covered. Verse 38. You'll not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they had already said that in chapter 21 at the triumphant entry. But now he's repeating it. You're going to say this when I come back. You won't see me again until. So that intimates another appearance, another coming. So he's now talking about in these chapters, chapter 21 onward, and when he gets more specifically chapter 24 of Matthew through 25, of events that would, some, that would take place between the two comings. And this whole behavior and attitude that we should have as believers during that period of time in which we would live. And we're living in it, folks. And so, in Matthew twenty four fifteen to start this end times recap, uh, we're introduced to a term, as you may remember, the abomination that brings desolation, or the abomination that leads to the desolate. And this was spoken of by Daniel the prophet. And Jesus is referring to what Daniel said in chapter 9, verse 27. We will not actually get into that uh, this morning but because it's not really part of, of what 
uh, end times is about in, in our discussion here this morning. But this was a sign to that generation that this abomination of desolation was, to, was fulfilled then, in part, when Titus and the Roman army came in and destroyed the temple and sacked Jerusalem. And Israel as a nation was scattered throughout the world and remains so to this day. And so what's interesting is that as you look at the parallel passage in chapter 21 of Luke's gospel. So I've written these scriptures down for you. You have them. You can visit them. But he makes the statement in the same context as this, but he doesn't, he talks about the desolation, but his emphasis is on another term that we should be familiar with because this sets the framework from what the Bible teaches us about God's plan for the ages. He refers to a term as Jerusalem being trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And so we need to understand what the term means, when it starts, and when it ends. It's an important framework for us to grasp. Jesus, in speaking of these events, referred to the book of Daniel. And it's an Old Testament book that's loaded with prophetic words that pertain to the two comings of Messiah. And we've referred to those over the past few weeks as we've gone through the gospel here. But I think we need to start with this big overview, this times of the Gentiles. So turn with me, if you will, to Daniel chapter 2. I'm of the opinion that the times of the Gentiles begin at the fall of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. by the hands of the Babylonians. Uh, the Jewish people went into captivity for their idolatrous practice and worship of false gods. And understand that God's intent was not to destroy the nation of Israel by sending them into captivity. In reality, it was God being merciful to them and actually preserving a remnant so that they could, after 70 years, come back and reestablish. They needed to be disciplined for their rebellion. And so God in his mercy was actually preserving the nation, not destroying the nation and allowing Babylon to come in and sack Jerusalem at that time. This was not God's intent with the nation of Israel from the beginning. And so I'm going to pull on a, a motif that runs through the scriptures, a thread, a theological thread that you need to grasp. If you understand some of these threads that run from the Old Testament into the New Testament, you're able to tie things together. And, and they make sense. Now, not everybody believes the things that I'm going to say. Not everybody has the same prophetic overview that I do. And that's okay. They're, you're not going to lose your salvation over this. But it, it's, it makes the most sense to me. And so I believe it is God's plan. I think sometimes... You, we overthink things. We overanalyze things. Anybody guilty of that? <laughs> Sometimes you just take things for face value, I mean. Um, so then that, that's really what I've tried to do. So if you're familiar with the Old Testament, the first 
11 chapters of Genesis is, is not a science book. It's a theological statement, how we got here, how we got in the condition that we're in, both on a personal level and also in the environment in which we live. We live in a fallen world, and we're a fallen creature. We're out of touch with God. We're out of touch with each other. We're out of touch with nature. We're a fallen race. That's explained to us. We have good footing when we understand that. And then we have judgments. Chapter 3. There was a judgment that came upon us, the curse for rebellion. There's another rebellion in chapter 6. And then there's another rebellion in chapter 11. And so God in his way, when there is rebellion, he doesn't instantly stomp people and judge them. He he usually withdraws. And so when there was a rebellion in chapter 11, when the nations refused to worship Yahweh, he withdrew and said, okay, fine. You want to worship these other gods? Go ahead. I'll disinherit you. And he did so. Chapter 32 of Deuteronomy and Psalm 84. And so as God does, he withdraws and he says in so many words, without saying it, I'll establish my own nation. And you know how the Lord works if you've been walking with the Lord for any time at all. He chooses the unlikely candidates to accomplish his purpose. You know, I was thinking, since you guys pulled that stunt in chapter 11, I think I'll make my own nation. In fact, there's a guy in Ur of the Chaldees that has a wife that can't have children. Yeah, I'll I'll just go with that. Okay. That's what he does. Chapter 12, he chooses Abraham who has a barren wife, and then he takes him out of that environment and puts him in a place all by himself, said, this is yours. Oh, really? <laughs> you're going you're gonna to have lots of kids. Okay, just want one. Really, just, just one. <laughs> I'll just take one. 25 years later, the miracle child is born. 80 years after that, two boys are born. Twins. One, whom 12 more kids come from, forming the nation of Israel. So God has his nation. It's now a great war going on in the Old Testament. If you're paying attention, it's Yahweh against who? The gods of the other nations. Yahweh is Israel's God. And he destroys the gods of the Egyptians. And then he brings them into the promised land and destroys those gods of those nations. Yahweh triumphs. You see, because according to the scriptures, Israel had a very unique call. They were God's nation. And I'm not going to go into this, but it would be good for you to read. Be familiar with this. Deuteronomy 4.32. A unique status that Israel had among the nations. But then God said of them in Deuteronomy 28, He said to them, If you will obey me and do what I've commanded you, you shall be the head and not the tail. Deuteronomy 28 verse 14. I'll make you the head and not the tail. You'll be blessed above all nations. You'll be a light to the Gentiles. To those nations who worship false gods, the true and living God will be able to be seen and viewed by your life. Much the same as the Christian and the believer today. If we live our lives in obedience, then the world can see that we truly love God and there is the living, true God who is real and he is in heaven and he's alive today. And Jesus is who he says he is. If we live lives complementary of what the gospel says. And so they did become a leading nation under Solomon's reign. 
David's son. They were the leading nation of the world. And then that's when they got into trouble. They began to turn their hearts away. Their prosperity spoiled them. And they began to disobey. And of course, with disobedience comes the curse of judgment. And this is why God brought in Babylon. And God warned them over and over, sending them prophets saying, Look, get it right. Stop doing this. Repent. Turn back. God loves you. God will be merciful. And they refused to hear him. Jeremiah 25, 1 through 11. 2 Chronicles 36, 15 through 21. Record what God would do. And then in Chronicles there we have the, as it were, fall and the sacking of Jerusalem and the exile of the believers. At that point in time, Israel no longer was the head. They would now become scattered. They would now become the tail. And this is what happened. And I believe that this is the time when the times of the Gentiles begin. Okay, my nation has refused. They've, they've, they've forfeited this right. And now we're just going to let the Gentiles and their kingdoms run their course. And that's what this dream in Daniel 2 is all about. Probably more to it than that, but at least there's that. And it's the dream. And it is really a dream. This is literally a dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had. But it is a dream of man to live, as it were, independent of God. Idolatrous living. Selfish living. And so this vision, this dream, is a perspective from man's point of view. How man sees world-governing empires. And so... Essentially what has happened, I'm going to recap some of this for the sake of time because i got to teach the whole Bible here, so I'm going to keep moving, right? Um, Nebuchadnezzar, well, I just, in fact, I'll just read part of it to you because I like the way it says it. In chapter 2, well, I'll set it up a little bit. King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He wakes up and he can't remember the dream and he's ticked. He's, he's, he's angry. And so he calls the wise men and says, I had a dream and I, really, I know there's something to it. I'd really like to know what it means. And the wise men say, well, just tell us what it was and we'll let you know what it means. Well, the problem is, fellas, I can't remember it. So tell me what the dream was and tell me what it means or I'm going to kill you. Are you serious? Yeah. So this is the predicament they're in. They're in, they're in trouble. They're going to die. What do, I got you, what do I got you guys on the payroll for if you can't fill, you know, solve these problems? And this is a problem. I want to know what it was. So D- Daniel finds out about it. He says, hold on. Hold on. Don't be in a rush. Give, me, give, us, a, give us a little bit of time. So Daniel and his friends, they go before the Lord. And the Lord reveals not only the interpretation, the dream, but also its interpretation to Daniel. And so that's sort of where we pick it up here. And he is taken, verse 24, he's taken before the king. And he says, do not destroy the, verse 24, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king and I'll tell the king the interpretation. So Ariak quickly brought Daniel before the king and said to him, I found a man in the captivities of Judah who will make known the king, uh, the interpretation. The king answered, Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar. Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen its interpretation? Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, 
The secret which the king has demanded, the, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers, cannot declare to the king. But, and this is important, there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Catch the phrase, in the latter days. Your dream, the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, the secret is not revealed to me because I have more wisdom than any living. But for our sakes, who make known the interpretation to the king, you may know the thoughts of your heart. I, I can't overstate this importance of Daniel's humility here. In our imaging of God, because I know there's a lot of head knowledge that I'm delivering here, so that we've got to have a little application along the way. Would you not agree? The humility. There is a God in heaven that reveals. And it isn't for personal aggrandizement or any of those kinds of things. If we receive any wisdom or knowledge or blessing, it is not to be selfishly indulged in. It is for the sake of others almost all the time. I mean, God does give us certain things that are just gifts to us and are between us. I get that. But when it comes to serving the body of Christ, any gifting, any anointing, any, anything, a man can receive nothing except it come from above. That is just the way it works. And it is not to be absorbed selfishly by that individual it is to be given to minister to the needs of others and so this is what ministry is all about this is what our ministry here is all about in verses in the following verses here Daniel recites to him and this is important that we'll so important we'll read it verse 31 and you O king were watching and behold a great image the image was Splendor was excellent. Stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image head was fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And while you watched, a stone was cut without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and broke them in pieces. Then the iron and the clay and the bronze, the silver and the gold were crushed together and became like a chaff from the summer threshing floor. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream and now the interpretation. In verse 37, You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom power, strength, and glory. Wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, and the birds of heaven, he has given them into your hand, and he has made you ruler over all of them. You are the head of gold, but after you shall rise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over the earth. And a fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. 
yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. But as the toes of feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom will be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw the iron mixed with clay, they mingled with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. I'm going to say that we're talking, I think, primarily there, that verse is talking about the interaction between the spirit realm and the natural realm in which we live. Enough at that point. And verse 44, we'll get back to later, but I'll read it now. In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And that kingdom shall be not be left to another people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw the stone that was cut out of the mountain without hands, that it will be bro- broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the silver, the gold, the great God has made known to you, the king, what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and the interpretation is sure. That's pretty powerful. So powerful, the king fell on his face like, whoa. And so we have what I believe is the beginning of the times of the Gentiles in which these four kingdoms would be world-governing empires, and history would flesh that out. It happened, except for the final. And so... In chapter 7, we're going to move on. In chapter 7, we have a similar vision. Chapter 7. And this time, it is Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, the last king before they fell, uh, in his first year and then in the third year. He has two different visions, chapter 7 and chapter 8 respectively. And in chapter 7, we have God's perspective on these four world-governing empires. They are not seen as materials, which, as we skipped over, back up a little bit here, the image of gold, silver, bronze, iron, iron mixed with clay. You can see we go from most precious to least precious. We go from a soft, pliable metal and worth much to something that's very hard and rigid and not strong. And so there there would be that aspect and characteristics of those kingdoms. The the grandest of them all would have been Babylon. In chapter 7, we have God's perspective on that world, on those world-governing empires. They are, as it were, ravenous beasts. And he tells us there in chapter 7, verse 1, Uh, The first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, he had a dream and visions of his head while he was on his bed. Careful when you go to sleep tonight, folks. (laughs) And he's telling the main facts. I saw in my vision by night, and behold, four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. So we're talking about uh, four winds of heaven, probably four angelic beings who are, are in charge of the rule of the nations. If you understand scripture, you understand what I'm talking about, the rule of some and some level of angelic beings that have charge over the nations, even to this day. Uh, from the sea, the sea is emblematic or symbolic of the world. Each here, as he said, there are four great beasts came up from the sea or out of the world, each different from the other. The first was like a lion, 
and had eagle's wings. I watched till its eagle, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man. And a heart, man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, it raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it, they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. And after this there was another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceeding strong, and it had huge iron teeth. It was devouring and breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had horns. It was considered... I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up from among them before whom the first three horns were plucked up by the roots. And there this horn were the eyes of a man with a mouth speaking pompous words. And so here we have this dream vision of Daniel describing first the Babylonian kingdom. It was the lion. It had its wings plucked off, as it were. It was lifted up from you, it was made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. What do, we know what happened in chapter 4, don't we? Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was lifted up with pride. He, I'm the greatest, you know. Look at this, this is not Babylon that I've built. And we see what pride will do. It will destroy a man. And so God humbled him, turning him into, as it were, a a beast who crawled upon his feet and ate grass for a period of seven seasons, however long that might be. And then he came to his senses. I believe we'll see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. I think he humbled himself. I think he got right with God. God uh, showed him who was really king. And, and so that's sort of there. And then suddenly this other beast, uh, like a bear, was raised up on one side. And so uh, we have... The Medes and the Persians coming in and taking down Babylon under uh, what would have been the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, other parts of Daniel contain that story. And then following that would have been the Grecian Empire, a leopard. Now we see again, you look at the kingdom of animals. We're going from most powerful, the you know, the eagle is the greatest of the birds, so to speak, and then the lion is the king of the jungle. So we're going from the greatest to lesser, the bear, uh, and then the leopard. But all of them are ravenous-type beasts. But this last one, uh, we believe, is yet to come. And it is a combination of the previous three, but it is, as it says here, dreadful and terrible. It's beyond fearful. It's awesome in its power and strength. Now, according to Daniel 2, it is during the reign of this last empire, the iron mixed with clay, that this kingdom from heaven that will be set up. And so let's turn, uh, as it were, to uh, chapter 17 of Revelation and, and see what this end time kingdom that we've just read about here in chapter 7. You can see how the book of Daniel 
sort of dovetails into the book of Revelation. And for those of you who have attempted to read Revelation, it is a difficult book. There's lots of controversy over different things, and people believe and interpret things in various ways. I think it's safe to say that when you read about Babylon here, which started, by the way, back in Genesis 11, (laughs) the plains of Shinar, you have at least this we can be sure about. Babylon is not only a religious system, but it is also an economic system. And this last world governing empire will contain both of those. The religious system will be represented by one of the beasts, the false prophet. And the other one will be, uh, the economic system will be uh, represented by the Antichrist. But they will be as one, and then actually they'll, Antichrist will, will take the lead. Um, but there are, as it were, two beasts. And so this is sort of described to us here uh, in chapter 17. In verse 3, John was carried away in the spirit into the wilderness, and he saw this woman sitting on the scarlet beast, whose name was, was full of blasphemy, having said seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold, and precious stones and pearls, and having in her hand a golden cup full of the abominations of the filthiness of her fornication, and on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots, the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I tell you a mystery. The woman and the beast that carried her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns, the beast which you saw that was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and will go down to perdition. Those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. And when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is, here is a mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings, and five have fallen. One is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. And the beast that was, and is not, is himself also the, of the eighth. And his other seven is, is going into perdition. The ten horns which you saw are the ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet but they will receive authority for one hour as the kings of the beast. And then with one mind, they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb and the lamb will overcome them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those who are with him who are called chosen and faithful. And he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are the people's multitudes, nations and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast which will hate the harlot make her desolate naked and eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. The woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Pregnant with mystery is that chapter. 
But as you can see, it is a kingdom that is partly strong and partly weak. There's division within. There's a division between the religious aspect of it and the economic aspect of it. The Antichrist and the false prophet will not get along at a certain point in time. And uh, he'll turn them, they'll turn on each other, and, and it won't end well for either one of them, actually. They're both going to the lake of fire. Now, as we looked at, if, we've, if you've studied history at all, these kingdoms are identified. We've already identified Babylon. It, Daniel said, you are the head of gold, king. How do we know that the, the, ar- the chest and arms of silver are the Medes and the Persian? Well, that's chapter 8. I'm not going to spend any time there, but you can go there. Uh, the Medes and the Persians fall to who? In history, they fell to the Grecian Empire. That would be the leopard in chapter seven. Chapter seven, and then who did Greece fall to? They fell to the Romans. Now, that would be the legs of iron, and then we have the iron, the ten toes, the iron mixed with the clay. And so, uh, a lot of people of scholars have sort of labeled this the, sort of the revised Roman Empire, and we still have even to our day, the effects of the Roman Empire. The Roman em- Empire was destroyed from within, but the remnants, the, the, the law, and a number of the things uh, con- has continued through antiquity. We, we refer back to a lot of things we don't realize uh, that we practice today uh, come from that history, of, and, their, and our roots are there. Um, so be that as it is, notice there are ten toes on that statue. And then there are ten, seven heads in, you know, in chapter seven. How does he say? Oh, for the sake of time, I... This is at the end of chapter seven. The fourth beast, a fourth kingdom on the earth, which is different from all other kingdoms, shall devour the whole earth, trample it, break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom and another shall rise after them and he shall be different from the first. He shall subdue three. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High. He'll persecute the saints of the Most High. He'll intend to change times and laws. The saints will be given into his hand for a time, times and half a time. Now I'm not going to go into detail but this is the tribulation period he's talking about. And I think the saints he's talking about are the are the Jews that have turned to God. The 144,000 Apostle Paul's running around sharing the gospel. He's going to turn on them. There's going to be a lot of people martyred during that period of time. But we're not here to talk about the book of Revelation. But it's essentially the book of Revelation, chapter 6 through 19, is that seven-year period of tribulation of which the latter half, the latter three and a half years, is a time of absolute abomination of desolation it is destructive it is like a judgment billions of people die those who do not receive the mark of the beast die there's genocide it is at that time that is the last world governing empire and according to daniel 2 what strikes that image what what hits the image in the feet is what we see in daniel chapter 7 beginning in verse 9 and we'll finish up with this and it also corresponds to Daniel 2 the stone 
cut out of the mountain without hands, striking the image in the feet. Just different imagery being used here. But we're sticking with Daniel 7, verse 9. I watched till thrones were put in place. What are thrones for? A throne is authority, a th- judgment. And the Ancient of Days was seated. Who's the Ancient of Days? Anybody want to volunteer that information? It's Yahweh. His garment white as snow. His hair on his head was like pure wool. Does anybody remember what Revelation 1 and the description of Jesus Christ is? It's the same thing. Who is the Ancient of Days? It's the Lord Jesus. Well, I thought that was the Father. Well, you figure it out. They're one, but they're separate. Okay, I got it. <laughs> it's hard, isn't it? <laughs> you try to understand the Trinity, but that's what the Bible teaches us. The hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame. Its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth before him. This is Ezekiel 1, the vision of the throne of God. Same idea going on here. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousands and thousands ministered to him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated. The books were opened. Whew. Now, verse 13. I was watching in the night. And behold, one like the Son of Man. Remember that phrase? Who's, who's, who uses that phrase in the New Testament of himself? The Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus quoted this scripture when he was on trial. At this point, you will see the Son of Man at the right hand of power coming on high. You know, rip the clothes. Vanderbilt need a blasphemy. You know, he went berserk. The high priest, the demon-possessed high priest went berserk. Ripped his clothes. Ah. That got Jesus crucified. Coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days. Okay, then we have separation of personage here now. And they brought him near before him. And then to him was given dominion, glory, a kingdom, and all peoples, nations, and language languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. Are you happy about that? Do you realize how secure you are in Christ? This is God fulfilling what he promised to David. Your son, your son, that which comes from you will be forever. That's why that's, that's why the, hence the term son of David, son of man, son of David. He inherits all this. Seeing how sure the prophetic word is, Peter saw, sobers us all up. This is this cool, yeah. But seeing all this is going to be dissolved, seeing that our lives are so temporal. And we have but a short time to live and to image God in this fallenness. What kind of people should we be? How should we be living? Should we be spending our time on things that are temporal and that we know are going to burn? And I'm not saying what we do and what we make and and our jobs are are pointless. They're not. But it's the attitude of our heart. Whatever we do is dedicated to the Lord. 
And whatever God decides to do with what we make and what we do, that's up to him because we've dedicated it to him. But it's for his glory. And, in, and when we do things like that, we're imaging God. And we're giving, drawing attention to the grace and the mercy and the love of God that's in our own lives. That's what it's all about. It's really quite simple. But we know that this is going to happen. As sure as we're sitting in our seats right now, and even more sure than that, the Lord is coming back in power and great glory. And so, are you doing what you can with what you have where God has placed you? This is the motto of our church. We need to do what we can with what we have where God has placed us. Time is short. I have no guarantee that I'll be here tomorrow or the following week or the next year. I have no idea when, when my number's up. My days are numbered. And I don't know when that last day is. Neither do you. That shouldn't be, bother us. That shouldn't, we shouldn't be preoccupied with that. It's as Jesus said, let tomorrow worry about the things of itself. Today has enough problems of its own. But if we live every day in dedication and commitment to God, and we live as if it's 1159, and it is, Daniel told the king thousands of years ago, this is for the latter times. We are in the last days. We are in the closing moments of the age. Jesus is coming back. Do you believe that? Do you believe what I say? Don't believe what I say. Believe what the scripture reveals. I don't know about you, but I get pretty jacked up about this. I think it's pretty cool. I'm ready to get out of here. I've had enough. <laughs> hey, maybe some of your other brothers and sisters, uh, you know, you don't, I don't quite see it that way. Like, I want to get married. I want to have kids. Okay, that's fine. But uh, what is our life? It is but a vapor. We're here for a, a few moments, really. What is, what is 50, 60, 80, even 90 years compared to eternity? The Lord doesn't say, count your years, does he? What does he say? Count your days. Think about your life in terms of days. If you live to be 100, that's only 36,500 days. I don't know about you, but 36,500 days doesn't sound like that much. Now, for you 50-year-olds, you're half of that, right? You're only 18,000, you know, 250. Yeah, you're not very old. Well, you think you're old just because your body hurts? <laughs> it's all about perspective, isn't it? And I think it's wonderful that God has laid out for us this timeline, so to speak, to give us an understanding, a framework to hang our thoughts on, to really see that what he says, think about it for a moment. God speaks of things that are not as though they were because he knows they're going to be. He said to the, to the gods in Isaiah's day, go ahead. Go ahead, false gods. Tell me things to come. It was through God's prophetic word that set him apart from all the other gods. And if he speaks of things that are not because they're going to be, then we need to take heed. This is going to happen. God is going to come for his people. He's, and if he doesn't come in the rapture, he's still coming for you. He may, it may take us by death, but we've got to be ready. 
And that's what Jesus was trying to communicate. The day that the Son of Man returns, no one knows the day or the hour, but to be watchful, to be ready, to be prayerful. That's our, our hope and our purpose here in Calvary Chapel and as believers in the Lord. Shall we pray? Father, thank you. Thank you for showing us generally what's going on. This is difficult information, hard to piece together. But Lord, regardless, we know you're coming soon and we want to be ready. We've heard the message, Lord. We got the memo, duly noted. Work in our hearts. We surrender to you, Lord, and we're giving you permission. Whatever changes need to happen in our hearts, whatever changes need to happen within our minds to set us straight, we want to image you perfectly while we're here in the body. To those ends we pray, Lord, work in our lives, work through our lives, and be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Shall we stand?